Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect podcast. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Priyamvada Gopal, who is an author, a professor at the University of Cambridge's English faculty, and a scholar at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Priya wrote a really fascinating piece for the most recent issue of Prospect about the assault on the humanities and why they're worth defending. Priya, thanks so much for joining us today. Where are you based? I'm currently in Princeton, New Jersey at the Institute for Advanced Study. Oh, so you're across in the US. Well, thanks for, for calling in from there. So your piece addresses what's become quite a kind of hot topic in public discourse in the UK. And you, you start off by asking the question, are the humanities always in crisis? In recent months and years, you know, possibly that's this has been a growing discussion about the idea that they are at the moment in crisis. But do you agree with that? I said at the beginning of the piece, I think, that uh, crisis in the humanities is a topic that is almost as old as the humanities itself. The humanities have always had to, in some sense, justify themselves. They've often been treated as a field of questionable value, and they've often been subjected to attacks uh, from the outside. Uh, And so, in a sense, if you go to a library and you uh, punch in crisis humanities, you will come up with literally hundreds of books and thousands of articles. Uh, My point was that the humanities are not in themselves in crisis. They're flourishing really anywhere that you look, but they are perpetually subjected to attacks from the outside. Sometimes those attacks are muted and die down and at other times they become more salient. And I think we're currently in a phase in the UK, but also in the US where I'm currently based, um, where uh, the humanities are very much under attack, largely from uh, politicians. Can we pause for a second and entertain the idea, the arguments that people put forward to say that the humanities are indeed in crisis? I mean, people talk about fewer students uh, taking courses in the humanities. We see humanities uh, departments in universities increasingly having to cut jobs, which is, you know, I'm sure we'll come to is kind of linked to that, very much linked to that political context. But is there anything right about the idea that that they are in crisis? Uh, Well, I mean, as I said, once these 
attacks get underway, and particularly when they come from funders and uh, politicians, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You attack the humanities by saying that they are, um, you know, worthless or or not as useful as other subjects. And what that what then happens uh, naturally is that um, some young people are put off studying. Their parents worry about, uh, uh, you know, what might happen if they uh, get a humanities degree. So numbers do fall. Um, I think there are two things to be said there. One is that, yes, there is a defunding crisis in Britain. The humanities have not been uh, funded uh, since 2010. And there is a situation where they're having to troll for grant money and find bits and pieces of money from here and there. University departments, if they don't have enough students, uh, naturally then are in the position of folding. I do want to say, though, that sometimes funding is used as an excuse uh, to shut departments down. It is by no means clear that in some of the departments that um, have been under attack in Britain, uh, Goldsmiths, Brighton, uh, and so on, that the humanities um, are in fact unpopular or insufficiently um, subscribed to. I think some of these attacks are quite clearly political. And this is because there is a sense, I think, in some uh, sections uh, of the political classes that um, lecturers and students in the humanities are a little bit bullshy and a little bit too inclined to protest and challenge um, and that their wings need to be clipped. So I think it is true that they're in crisis, but I'm saying that the crisis is coming from outside rather than from within, if that makes sense. Um, And I think that these things have the knock-on effect of deterring some students and certainly some parents uh, from taking up subjects uh, that are in in the humanities for fear of, you know, unemployment, which is completely, you know, justified, uh, and and for fear of, you know, not not being able to make um, ends meet. So there is a there is certainly uh, an undermining of its uh, institutional framework going on uh, in Britain. And I think that that does have an effect on some students who who feel worried about, you know, going into debt, uh, paying fees and going into debt, and then never being able to recover uh, what they put into it because they face unemployment. Um, and I think I, I think that, you know, that is uh, an, an ideological assault because, in fact, there is very little evidence to suggest that uh, the humanities are especially uh, more likely to lead to unemployment or especially likely to lead to uh, a poorer salaries. That The distinction between what you can get with a STEM degree and what you can get with a humanities degree um, is actually quite small. What kind of sources did you look at when you're writing the piece to to make that case when we think of of stem graduates we do think of kind of you know the booming science parks uh, jobs in in tech and ai which bring higher salaries than sort of more traditional humanities jobs within teaching and so on so where did you look to to come to the conclusion that actually salaries are maybe not that different so the British Academy did do a study a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2020, which actually tracked um, salaries and it tracked the relative prospects of humanities students and uh, uh, people who did uh, STEM degrees. And that study, uh, which is not very old, uh, found really, I think, a, a percentage point difference or a, a relatively small difference uh, between uh, what STEM graduates on the whole 
can expect and and what humanities uh, graduates uh, might get. Now, I do want to say one thing that we also have to understand that if society values the, uh, the STEM subjects more than it does the humanities, then in some senses that becomes a self-fulfilling prospect, right? You undermine the humanities and you say STEM is better and therefore STEM, you know, gets paid more. Um, I think that that is uh, a a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it's not that the humanities are inherently uh, likely to lead to uh, uh, worse prospects, but that you make the prospects for humanities students uh, worse. And I think that that is something we should be, uh, you know, also paying uh, attention to. But the other thing uh, to say here is this that if you tie the value of study purely connected to the production of economic value, i.e. the production of profit, then again, you're saying only those subjects which make industrial profits will be rewarded by society. And I want to say here that if you do that, it's not just the humanities that are affected. So too are some of the so-called pure sciences. So, you know, students are deterred from doing pure mathematics. They're deterred from doing pure physics or uh, pure biology, you know, the kinds of fields in which you you research without a particular goal because you don't know where you might end up. So I think there is a real danger that we're devaluing anything that doesn't make a profit. And that goes beyond the humanities. You write in the piece that the humanities are a public good rather than a private passion. Can you tell us more about how you'd characterise that good? Yeah. So, one of the arguments you often hear made is that, you know, I'm not against the arts, I'm not against the humanities, by all means, you know, people should do music or read books or, you know, paint paintings, but they should do that as a kind of private hobby. Society shouldn't have to uh, support it and pay for it. And the argument that I've made is that once you decide that you're not only going to reward corporate profits, you're not only going to reward uh, growth in a narrow economic sense, and you start to think about other kinds of social good, other kinds of public good, that that's where the humanities really you know, come into their own. If you think about it, every single basic skill that we teach students is tied to the humanities. We teach students to read. We teach young people to, to write. We teach them how to interpret books, uh, music, and, and, and art. And these are things that are, in a sense, basic human skills, interpreting and reading and making connections. If you decimate the humanities at a very basic level, uh, you can say, well, who's going to teach children to read and write? Because these are skills that derive from the humanities. In fact, in order to do STEM, in order to do the sciences, your basic steps will involve uh, the humanities and it'll involve, you know, mathematics. These are reading, writing, arithmetic um, as as the trio goes. But also, I think that we live in a world where, as you know, present events have made abundantly clear the catastrophic situation uh, in uh, Israel-Palestine, that people, in order to solve problems, in order to address social issues, need to understand history. They need to be able to decipher complex pieces of text um, or complex pieces of analysis. 
They need to be able to analyze situations. They need to be able to critique something that comes their way to assess its truth value, to understand what kinds of meanings uh, derive from a piece. And I think that the humanities are quite fundamental in providing the basic mental and intellectual infrastructure that we need in order to be able to address problems in society and in the world at large. And I think what we're seeing in many ways, you know, and you can take Brexit as an example, you can take all the things that happened during the Trump years in the US as an example. Uh, you can take, uh, you know, in my birth country of India, the, the rise of Hindu nationalism as an example. These are all reliant on pushing out historical understanding. It relies on people being willing to take at face value huge amounts of disinformation, people not making connections, people not understanding kind of basic historical facts. I mean, this, you know, the situation in, in Israel-Palestine now, it is startling how many people actually have no access to even the very bare bones basic historical facts of the situation. And that to me, uh, it, you know, it's not just that the humanities are a public good, but that without the humanities, we are sleepwalking into catastrophic situations. So I, I think I would even go so far as to say that there is an element of the humanities that is probably vital for human survival. Would you say that maintaining the humanities in a, in a healthy kind of vigorous way is, is, is kind of a key part of of what a healthy democracy looks like. Absolutely. I mean, I think we are in a situation in most places uh, where democracy has become kind of a, a formality, a technicality, um, and where actually democracy does not uh, have the kind of substantive, vital, knowledge-based public engagement that it really requires. You know, we have noted, uh, many people have noted that over the last decade or so, uh, there has been a rising tide of authoritarianism in many societies. Uh, you know, the US and the UK have emboldened authoritarian uh, elements. You have that obviously in places like, you know, Turkey and India and, and Brazil uh, before the most recent election. Um, why is there a rising tide of authoritarianism. One of the reasons is that we have huge amounts of disinformation circulating. We have huge amounts of mythology sloshing around where people are invited to, in a sense, buy into a false understanding of, of history and, and of their own uh, societies. Um, and this kind of lack of understanding, um, inability to you know, read and think and make connections um, actually feeds into the hands of authoritarians and people who don't really care about democracy, for whom, you know, at best, democracy is the exercise of people going to choose between you know, essentially two parties, um, uh, you know, if that. Um, and I think what we don't have, and I'm not the first person by any means to make that argument, is a citizenry uh, um, who are properly enfranchised, who can go to the ballot box armed with information, armed with the ability to interpret what they're being given um, and to understand the connections between different bits of information. And these are 
skills that are not restricted to the ivory tower. They don't have to be. They're not specialist skills, but they do require that the humanities be fostered and nurtured um, and be you know, disseminated as widely um, as possible. Uh, and, and I think that it is absolutely fundamental to, to democracy. I'm not saying it's the only thing, but I think that it is one of the baseline skills that people have to be able to have in order to make informed choices and to in order to be able to make democracy do uh, more than just, you know, choose between uh, two names uh, on, on a piece of paper. After the break, we'll talk more about the assault on the humanities. I would like to tell you about a new seasonal subscription offer. We're discounting the price of an annual digital subscription by 50%. To take advantage of this great deal, please visit prospectmagazine.co.uk slash BF. Be quick, though. The offer ends on Monday, the 27th of November. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Can we talk a bit about the potential kind of causal link there. So having a, a healthy humanities, you're saying, is an important part of maintaining a healthy democracy, countering disinformation. Is the link in that direction that rather a, a weak humanities tends towards authoritarianism? Is, does it the other, is it the other way around as well? I wasn't making a cause, simple causal link, but let's look at it the other way around. Why are authoritarians targeting the humanities? Right? So if you look at India, which is a context I know very well, the Hindu nationalist government there has repeatedly attacked history textbooks. We know that history, the teaching of history is contentious in Britain. We know that government and government uh, associated think tanks like Policy Exchange have been very, very keen to have a, you know, a strong hand in deciding what kind of history British students um, are taught. And we know this happens in, you know, in, in, you look at Florida now and you look at the state of Florida and the ways in which it has completely, you know, uh, distorted the teaching of the history of slavery, for instance. You see the attacks on critical race theory. 
right? And the question is, why do these politicians, particularly those with a kind of right wing and an authoritarian bent, why are they so bothered by the humanities that they feel the need to control what goes into textbooks, that they feel the need to control what you know college teachers are lecturing about. The most recent attack, and you're starting to see this now uh, in the media as well as uh, in uh, what politicians are saying, is on, on decolonization. And that's a subject I know a great deal about. And the one thing I know is that it is absolutely not what it is made out to be uh, in in political discourse or in, in, you know, some of the tabloid discourse around it. But if it's just a kind of useless little academic thing, then your best bet is to leave it well alone. Who cares? It's going to, you know, it's going to sit in its corner and do its little ineffectual thing. But the very fact that politicians and authoritarians feel the need to interfere with the teaching of history, of literature, of sociology, of critical race theory, of decolonization. That tells us that at some level, the humanities are threatening to people who don't want certain kinds of connections to be made and who don't want a citizenry armed with a nuanced understanding of history. Some politicians in the UK government today, who particularly make the case for STEM, might make that more economic argument that you've, you already addressed earlier and say, you know, this these are the sectors which, where there's growth, where there are jobs. It's not one or the other. You know, you can promote jobs in, in STEM and in science and, you know, research and study in STEM. And it doesn't have to mean denigrating the humanities. I mean, you may not see that in practice, but do you think that we're making a case for one or the other, STEM or the humanities, which are more kind of important, or do you see them as being equally important? I don't think that the, the division between STEM and the humanities, uh, it does anybody any good. And I don't think, I can't think of any academic who would wish to teach in a university where all subjects weren't flourishing in some sense. I mean, the Institute of Advanced Study where I am now has four schools, two are in the humanities, and two are in the sciences. Now, this is the place that is, you know, associated historically with people like Einstein and Oppenheimer and kind of the big scientific names. But it is really interesting to me that a place like this, you know, which is originally begins as a science-oriented place, has made a point of giving in the sense, you know, the humanities and social sciences equal time. And, you know, I think that anybody in a university, the, the word university means all things, all subjects, understands that, you know, that the conversations between these fields, the conversations between uh, different subjects is vital to the flourishing of knowledge. You can't silo knowledge into X or Y discipline. Knowledge is the constant engagement of different ideas. So I am not at all for any kind of false war between uh, the sciences and the humanities. But what you're suggesting, uh, you know, is, is, is right, that, that we don't need this distinction. But in fact, the politicians have actually been trying to stoke this division and saying, actually, you know what? And, and there are industrialists, you know, like people like James Dyson a few years ago, doing exactly the same thing, saying we don't need the humanities, just junk them and focus on the subjects that make money. And I think that that is a very divisive, dangerous and ultimately unhelpful binary. Do you think that the motivation for for that position speaks to those issues that are important to democracy about challenging power? Or do you think that 
you know, potentially they make those arguments out of a more market driven mentality and, and, and thinking about the potential for jobs and growth. I'm just interested what you think the motivation is there for this attack that you see on the humanities. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that those two things are not separable. I think that if you are uh, fully and ideologically committed to market driven growth, um, then it makes sense that you would not wish to foster subjects that don't in your mind, lead directly to market-focused growth. Um, and so you're not interested in fostering anything that doesn't feed into that. But that's not unconnected from the democracy question, right? Because markets actually don't necessarily need substantive democracies. Market ideology really is about giving people the illusion of choice that, you know, you can go and you have the power to choose between, you know, X brand of sneakers and Y brand of sneakers. And you can decide whether you want to pay £100 or £200 for it, right? You, you don't really require people to be exercising anything more substantive. You know, we're in a situation where politics has also become like a market choice. You know, do you want the softer or the harder version of this? But that's your choice, right? It's not like you have the choice to, you know, enact very profound changes through the ballot box um, at this stage. So I actually don't see a separation between the very thin commitment to democracy and the very, very profound commitment to market ideology. I think the two are linked and the attack on the humanities is in a sense connected to that. In this conversation, we've talked about a few different countries in which, you know, there are you know, tangible attacks on, on the humanities. And we've talked about challenges to to the ways in which humanities are taught in schools and in universities. The picture is certainly not a cheery one. I wonder whether there are any places in which you see a healthier story of how the humanities are being being treated and encouraged and nurtured. Well, I think, I think it's very hard nowadays to find, uh, you know, stories of optimism. And I want to say immediately that I have spoken of the context that I'm familiar with and the, and the three contexts I'm intimately familiar with are the United States, uh, India, uh, and uh, of course, Britain. The Anglosphere, in a sense, uh, is, is experiencing uh, both a culture war and simultaneously and relatedly an attack on the humanities. I think that there are still places where this level of division has not yet happened. I mean, in much of Europe, for instance, um, and in other places in, uh, in Asia and Africa, where there is still an interest, and this is very important, in public funded higher education, I don't think we're necessarily seeing this iteration of the culture wars. So even in a place like, you know, Germany or the Netherlands, uh, higher education is substantially funded by the state. Um, and in these cases, we're not actually seeing, you know, this concerted shutting down of major departments, you know, major language departments, English literature or other literatures. We're not actually seeing that. So I don't know if I would say that these are happy stories, but what we do have is 
evidence that you can have a kind of market-oriented economy and political system and not necessarily combine that with an attack on public higher education or on, on the humanities. In fact, there seems to be a sense that funding universities through the public purse and funding the humanities and the sciences, you know, through wide democratic access to higher education is not a necessarily bad for, for, for the market. And as I said in the article, uh, there are plenty of people who work in perfectly well remunerated professions who have a humanities background. So I, I do think that this is, a, is, a, is something of a concocted war um, in, in places like um, uh, the UK and the United States. And if you were to be giving advice to, you know, the next potential government in in the UK, what would be your advice on how they could do more to to cultivate a healthy humanity sector and kind of build back some of what has potentially been lost in recent years? Well, you know, I'm going to say something that uh, no government is going to really listen to uh, realistically, which is that I think we need to go back to a publicly funded model of higher education. This country had, a, had still has, but certainly had a, an enviable university sector that was publicly funded and, and had wide and democratic access to higher education. Almost anybody in uh, a ministerial or a shadow ministerial post right now went to university without paying for it and could therefore study any subject they wanted to without worrying about debt. I mean, I, one of the things I find very you know worrying is that debt has been inflicted on students from 2010 onwards. There was there was a little bit before then as well, and then that that very debt is used to then deter them from studying subjects that they might want to study. So I think we need to go back and follow uh, you know other countries in in Europe in publicly funding higher education. Unfortunately, we're going in the other direction, which is the US model, where people are paying, you know, 60, 70, $80,000 a year for education, which means that, you know, large swathes of the country will never be able to, uh, you know, take a class uh, at the university level. The other thing I would say, um, and I think that there is a degree to which the humanities have been undermined by this, is that some of the school teaching of the humanities has become very boring, become very mechanical, very thin, uh, students are, uh, you know, feel very uninspired by what they're studying uh, at the GCSE uh, A level level, and I think that the school teaching of the humanities has to be changed. I mean, I find, for instance, that when I teach first years, I spend a lot of time kind of undoing, you know, everything that that they were taught to do at the A-level stage. Um, And I think that it would be good if we had a more robust connection between university teaching in these subjects and and, uh, teaching in secondary school of these subjects. Well, thank you so much, Priya, for sharing your thoughts behind the wonderful essay that you wrote for us and your ideas. So thank you very much for, for taking the time. Thanks so much to Priya for joining us. And for listeners at home, grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect Magazine, which includes our cover package by Khaled Mansour on the geopolitical implications of the Israel-Gaza conflict and a piece by Avraham Berg, a former leader of the Israeli Knesset, on his hopes that Israelis who favour peace will come to the fore. Also in the issue, you can read Sam Friedman's take on the COVID inquiry and much more. (laughs) 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.